because you think like pelotons have existed ever since cycling started, but mm-hmm. um, why did it take until 2020 for someone to actually study it like 120 years after cycling racing started? Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've had some awesome guests, uh, but I miss just talking to Andrew. And so today, <laughs> <laughs> the conversation is just going to be between the two of us, and it's going to be about uh, an article that he sent me a few weeks ago that um, drew his attention, and it was on um, aerodynamic drag in large pelotons in cycling. And um, he sent it to me, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And it kind of sat in my inbox for a little while, and he goes, you, you got to read this thing. We should, we should do an episode on it. So I started looking at, uh, at some of the, uh, some of the data in this article and it completely blew me away. And there were, you know, there were things that I thought I knew about, um, cycling aerodynamics, um, certainly in like, you know, the non-drafting world of, of draft illegal triathlon that I was pretty comfortable with my knowledge in. Um, and I thought I had a pretty good handle on, um, on, how drafting affects um, affects aerodynamic drag, and we've certainly talked about it on this show a number of times. But this article totally exploded my uh, my preconceived notion. So it's uh, I think it's a really it's a really interesting discussion that we're about to have. I'm really excited about it, and um, I think you will be too. Well, thanks for that heartwarming intro. Um, I miss talking to you too, Michael. <laughs> so some of these conversations, like even outside of the podcast, we'll just have these conversations on our own. And it's it's really cool to drill down into the details of this. And you, you had made a comment about you not fully appreciating the aerodynamics. And I think the point of this article was that no one really appreciated the <laughs> impact of aerodynamics on pelotons. And there's, there's a couple very good reasons for that. And it's, it will be interesting to, to dive down into some of those details. Um, so just to frame this whole conversation, we're uh, basically reviewing an article that was written uh, for, well, it was a, um, uh, an academic article that was written by Bert Blocken, who's, uh, and there's quite a few co-authors on it as well, but he's been quite a prolific uh, publisher in terms of cyclist aerodynamics. So he's based out of the Netherlands. Um, so it wouldn't surprise you or shouldn't surprise you that uh, someone in the Netherlands is very interested in cycling. Um, <laughs> so the name of this is just, you know, very academic name. But aerodynamic drag and cycling pelotons: new insights by CFD simulation and wind tunnel testing. Um, so, kind of a yeah, not the most exciting name, but it it is actually very exciting data that's in there. Um, so, the peloton in in cycling is something that we we've kind of always taken for granted. I think uh, every time you see a cycling race, you just assume yes, it's faster. Yes, people form up that way naturally. There's a psychological aspect to it, I think, by being near people, but also it's primarily aerodynamic and it is just the faster way to go. And nothing better, uh, nothing proves this better in my eyes than looking at nature. So far before cycling, at least by a couple couple years anyway, uh, <laughs> birds have been flying in, uh, in formation. So that's not a surprise to anyone. 
Um, and the reasons they do this, people just, again, take it for granted that it's efficiency. So there's various factors that come into play. <clears throat> With birds, for example, the reason they fly in a V formation, um, <clears throat> it's partially drag, well, it's mostly drag reduction, but it's not drafting. Um, so they benefit from, there's actually a vortex that comes off the wings. So basically when they push down the wings, there's a, it's kind of like a cylinder of air that's spinning going out from the wingtip. Huh. And the bird beside will actually catch this updraft because it's spinning, they're pushing it down and the other side of the cylinder is coming up. So that vortex, um, the bird behind drafts off that. So they actually get this updraft. So it's like you're, you're getting pushed up already by your neighbor. So they're um, generating lift that way or they're, yep. they're, be, they're benefiting from extra lift? Oh, cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, and so one of the biggest sources of drag in aircraft is actually lift-induced drag. So you can take a normal aircraft and put it in a wind tunnel, and it's very streamlined, it's very aerodynamic, but the, the drag you're generating by actually creating a lift uh, significantly increases the, the total overall drag. Mm -hmm. So that's, <clears throat> that's why, well, it's why planes are much less efficient when they're heavily loaded. Um, now, they may... Mm depending on how you look at efficiency, right? Like if it's the amount of cargo per mile, blah, blah, blah. But it takes more power to overcome that extra weight. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So with animals, um, I just, I find it so fascinating because it's something that they naturally do. It's just instinctual. And some of the things that have been even recently studied and observed are phenomenal. Like um, they will actually find that birds will flap in sync. Um, so they, they have the same beat frequency of their wings, but they also have them out of phase so that when the bird in front of you or in front of another bird, I don't know if I've ever flown behind a bird, but uh, <laughs> when the bird in front of uh, the, the one they're looking at has its wings moving in a certain way, the, the trailing bird will actually find the most efficient position or phase offset or wing beat offset that oh, allows cool. it to uh to gain the most from that leading bird and it's uh yeah it's it's phenomenal uh to see this and the same kind of thing happens in fish uh, now fish it's more about propulsion as opposed to lift so they they rely on a bit different mechanism but ultimately anytime you're creating drag um there's this conservation of momentum so if you're losing momentum on yourself you're increasing momentum in the surrounding area. And that would mm -hmm. be by accelerating the fluid around you. So fish, if you mm -hmm. have a large school of fish, um, in the middle there, the, the fluid might be moving, the, the water might be moving along with the fish, uh, quite quickly. So that's how they, they benefit from it. And I think in this paper, I didn't take the exact number, but they, they noticed that the fish at the back or in the center of a school, uh, will actually beat their tails. I think it was like one fifth of the the number of times as the leading fish. So it's a pretty significant reduction in the amount of energy it takes to, uh, to travel from place to place. <clears throat> so that's so cool. Yeah. It's, and I, there's nothing I love more than seeing these, whether we know it or not, but like these bio inspired solutions to, uh, to any engineering problem. So, um, there, there's countless solutions that have been developed from, uh, for example, owl wings that um, the leading edge of an owl wing has a special feather that makes it silent because owls are ambush predators. 
Um, hmm. they, they want to be quiet until their talents are going through that mouse. <laughs> um, so that has been used for some of the development of wind turbines. Um, likewise, there's the humpback whales that have the, uh, I forget the name now, on their fins, I think it's tubercles. Um, yep. That, yep. Uh, the little, little bumps on them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is something that was discovered, I think, around the early 2000s. Um, but it actually significantly improves the amount of cornering ability that uh, that they have. So they can maneuver much more efficiently. And you don't think of whales as needing to move efficiently. But the reality is, like, they they put a lot of energy into propulsion. They don't beat their tails often, but they they really need to to move around efficiently. And if you're trying to accelerate a 20-ton animal, that's... Through water. Yeah, through water. That's going to take a lot of energy. So anything that they can use to, uh, to optimize that, um, yeah, it's definitely a benefit for them. And again, using the survival of the fittest evolutionary mentality, um, they... Those those solutions that work well get passed on to future generations because they uh, they end up surviving longer. Absolutely, and this is a little bit of a of a meta moment for us because um, initially yes. one of the uh, <laughs> one of the formative um, you know purposes of this podcast was to uh, study and talk about why you know how is it that that we humans through the use of technology or our kind of inventive ways can become can overcome some of our naturally so some of our natural kind of slowish tendencies in fact our very very first episode and uh, listeners if you want to have a chuckle you can go back and listen to <laughs> Andrew and I talk about this in a in a very stilted way at our first episode uh, called you know conveniently enough why humans are slow um, and we, you know, Andrew talks about some of this biomimetic design, whether it's intentional or unintentional. That's one of the reasons that this podcast came about. And that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's always been kind of in the back of our minds of uh, um, looking at how we humans emulate nature in, uh, in the design of, of making us faster in, well, in, this, in our context in endurance sports. So let's look at this article, um, set it up for us. What did they, what were they trying to sort out and, uh, and uh, how did they do it? And and honestly, this so, and actually one of the things that you told me when we were having an off um, off the air conversation was you were a little bit surprised and not surprised that it actually took so long for an article like this to uh, uh, to be published. So why don't we start there? Why did it take so long for uh, such a comprehensive study of uh, aerodynamics of a peloton? Yeah, so it it is a bit of an interesting problem. The peloton itself has existed for a long time. So people, just like animals, have uh, understood from a very early time that it's more efficient to travel in groups like this. And the reason it hasn't really been studied, um, well, there's a number of reasons that it hasn't been. So the the complexity of the problem is, is mainly what it comes down to. So for example, we've got, um, in this paper, they've got 121 riders, uh, which is a lot of people to measure and to coordinate. So if you're trying to do, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, um, anecdotally, there's no question that you have drag reductions, but it was just never really answered how much there was. And looking at the, the standard methods of evaluating aerodynamics for cyclists. So you could look at a wind tunnel, you could look at velodrome testing, you could look at, uh, power meter, for example, uh, you could look at computational fluid dynamics or CFD. Um, so all of those are 
solutions to get a single rider. The challenge is this uh, this becomes much, much more complicated when you deal with 120 riders as opposed to one. Mm-hmm. The wind tunnel itself, um, we'll start with there and uh, kind of look at why this hasn't been done. So to get a large enough wind tunnel to study 120 full-size riders is very difficult and phenomenally expensive. So there's just never been enough money available. Um, so this would be something. Are there like, such tunnels like slow, 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 slow airspeed wind tunnels that can accommodate that kind of mass of people? Yeah. So there, there are a handful. I think NASA has one. Um, but if you're pushing off the space shuttle, for example, <laughs> uh, to test cyclists, um, yeah, I mean, you can imagine the cost that that would incur. Right. So one of the other interesting challenges is when you have this group of people, like you can't go to a smaller tunnel, first of all, because of the length, but also because of something called the the blockage ratio. So if you're taking up too much space in the wind tunnel, it's kind of like putting a cork in it. Um, uh-huh. So th- the blockage ratio is usually uh, the rule of thumb is to keep it less than 5%. So you want to block less than 5% oh, wow. of the frontal area. So if you've got 120 riders, yeah, it may only be 10 riders wide, but that's still 20 times that is what you need in terms of total frontal area or cross-sectional area of the the wind tunnel, which is quite large. So that's so, width or is it, or does it include the, the height of the tunnel? As the well? height as well. Yeah. Okay. So you want to keep a couple uh, diameters away from all sides. So mm-hmm. and diameters just like reference to a characteristic length. So the shape. Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the reason for that is you would be accelerating the air. So if you have a cork, for example, using that analogy that blocks 50% of the, the wind tunnel area, in order to get that same airflow around, uh, you're going to need to accelerate it to on average, twice the average velocity or the, the free stream external velocity. Um, so that's, that's obviously a pretty significant amount. And if you're trying to measure things, then it's not representative of what's actually happening in the air. So there is a little bit of acceleration as it goes around an object, or actually quite a bit, but not near that magnitude. So you have to be very careful about the the amount of stuff you put in a wind tunnel. Makes sense. So then you're no longer you're no longer testing like a, a an open environment conditions if you're if exactly. the walls of the wind tunnel are too close to the yep. to the object being tested. Okay, makes sense. Yep. Yep. So that's that's one limitation. Another one, which is a little bit harder to comprehend for someone who doesn't or hasn't been exposed to fluid dynamics, but uh, the the natural question would be why can't we just use scale models? Um, and the answer is we sort of can, but and there's always a but. Um, there's something in aerodynamic or fluid dynamic testing that's really important, and that's maintaining all your non-dimensional numbers. So you have these characteristic numbers of the flow, and the most well-known is the Reynolds number, which is the ratio of inertial forces to viscous forces, so how fast a fluid is moving more or less. So if mm-hmm. you have something like honey flowing, that would have a very low Reynolds number, and then something like air has uh, a very high Reynolds number um, because of the amount of inertia, like it's more governed by how fast the flow is moving as opposed to the the forces sticking it together. Sure. Okay. And why is that relevant? So in maintaining this, um, the Reynolds number is the product of the size, so a length scale that you're choosing, uh, times the velocity. So if you want to keep this number equal, if you decrease the size of something, you actually have to increase the velocity, 
which is okay. this is the part that loses a lot of people because it's counterintuitive. So when you scale a model down, you actually need to speed up the flow. Okay. So if you're traveling 15 meters per second, um, and say you want to do a one-tenth scale model, um, then you have to increase the flow speed by a factor of 10. Um, so, yep. Uh, so 150 meters per second is what you'd need to do, but (laughs) this is another problem. You start to deal with, uh, compressible effects. So what we normally assume is that the flow is incompressible. So it's always the same density, give or take. Um, but when you start to get into really high speed flow, uh, this is where compressible aerodynamics start to come into play, and you get to high Mach number flows. So the speed of sound and it gets is, really messy, huh? Yeah. So the the speed of sound is about three hundred and forty meters per second um, at sea level at twenty degrees, and if you get more than I can't remember the number offhand, more than about a third of that, you start to have to consider compressibility. So if we do the one tenth scale model, um, then we need to uh, deal with compressibility. <clears throat> so that's not really an option. And, um, because now, now we're dealing with <laughs> subsonic or high, high Mach number cyclists, which is not really realistic. Um, right. and, but they oh, used, a, it looks like they used a quarter scale model here. They did. Yeah. And, and in this case it works well. Um, so this is one thing that's a low enough starting speed that they were able to use a quarter scale model. And, uh, and that, allowed for 60 meter per second airspeed, which is still 180 kilometers an hour or more than that. (laughs) So like that's still pretty high speed. Um, So, and this is where the challenges come in. Like there's very few wind tunnels that can do those kinds of speeds uh, and have a large enough test section to test 180 riders at a quarter scale. So it's this uh, is something I remember from my university days, listeners, is that like <laughs> is that the 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 faster the wind tunnel goes, the smaller it tends to get. So you kind of have to, yes. you know, you you're getting into a little bit of a balance of, of of finding a location, finding a facility that'll go that'll have airflow velocities that you want that will fit the thing that you want to test. So a fun aside is um, hypersonic wind tunnels, uh, using your analogy. So when you're dealing with Mach five plus. Um, Obviously, we don't generally have fans that can <laughs> blow air at Mach 5. That's a good uh, point. So you have these blowdown wind tunnels, which basically you pump a big cylinder, and then you put it through a special nozzle, and then it will go over your test section. And you only can run it for a minute at a time, because, or even a few seconds sometimes at a time, because you're trying to... Um, well, you've only got that air available. You've only got so much volume of air yeah, okay. yeah, before it, it blows down. Um, and some of the, the wind tunnel tests, like they'll, they'll have the models that will be on the scale of centimeters. So I think that's how they um, did some of the testing for the space shuttle for reentry, things like that. Huh. Um, so it's, cool. it's just an area, it's a very interesting area of research. Um, very off topic here, but, uh, <laughs> but okay. So, so yeah. bringing us back on topic, uh, as much fun as wind tunnels are. So it was, it's super tricky to do this in a wind tunnel because of, uh, because of speed effects and, and, and just having, finding the right facility that can accommodate yeah. 120 riders in this case. And they were, uh, listeners will, uh, will link to this article, but just so you get a sense, the Peloton in this case, I think was, te- it looks like 10 riders wide was the widest part yes. of the Peloton. It was kind of like, you know, it's the kind of the V formation that you would normally imagine in a Peloton. You know, you have one rider, then two, then three, then four, then five, then six. And then one, once it gets to about 10 wide, it goes 9, 10, 9, 10, 9, 10 until you hit 121 athletes. So it's sort of like 
you know, a, a wedge that tapers mm. off or that doesn't taper off really, but that, that flattens out. And an interesting note here is that the configuration that they tested was um, an offset configuration. So you'd be riding in between the, the riders in front of you. So they didn't do the direct lines. And sometimes a Peloton forms like that, it can get more compressed that way because then you can kind of slot in between riders. But then there's also the concern about half wheeling people. But uh, yes. as, as pro riders are usually pretty good at that. Like they don't, they can react quickly and there's not a lot of accidents related to that. Um, okay. You can see a good counter example by looking at, I think it was a 2018 Ironman Texas <laughs> when triathletes <laughs> Famous were Ironman Texas. <laughs> yeah, when triathletes who are not good at riding in Pelotons attempted to do that on tri bikes and there were a number of accidents um, and it was their own fault. Like it's anyway, inexcusable. That was frustrating, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so that was the configuration they tested. And I think there were two different spacings they used. One where it was basically wheel. So hang on, Andrew, I'm gonna interrupt. I just wanna I wanna mm-hmm. wrap up the um the point you were making about why this is so difficult to oh, test. Right. What about what yes. what about CFD analysis of something like this? Yeah, what are some of the challenges there? CFD just comes down to the size of the model. Um, so the amount of computer you need. So even with this study, okay. they did a, uh, a Cray supercomputer that was, I think, donated by, they used ANSYS or worked with ANSYS to perform the simulation. So ANSYS mm-hmm. is a company that designs CFD software. And these models, I think, were on the order of 3 billion cells. Be, I remember, yeah. That be. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> so it, uh, yeah, I mean, if you think of calculating conservation of mass at each one of 3 billion different points, uh, <laughs> it's going to take, it, and you do conservation of mass, conservation of momentum, there's a couple turbulence equations that you solve. And That's a lot of slide rule work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, your slide rule is going to be worn out at the end of this. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it, it's just been lack of available computer resources. And these computers have mm-hmm. existed for a while that can do this, but it's just, again, the cost of accessing them has been so high. Um, so it just hasn't been something that's been practical to do until you have an industrial partner who's trying to essentially show off and use their equipment for a big project <laughs> like this. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So the other area that uh, could be used to validate something with a cyclist that we've talked a lot about in the past uh, is the velodrome. Um, so why haven't we done velodrome testing? Well, um, a personal anecdote of uh, Kurt Bergen Taylor, who we talked to um, probably about ten episodes ago. Um, he he was saying that in his own testing uh, with the track cycling team, he's noticed that um, if they're doing team pursuit or just a pursuit race, um, having someone opposing you, so having two riders on the track starting on opposite sides, okay. uh, they will be one to two seconds faster for the entire race. So you're starting 125 meters apart. And once you're up to speed, uh, you're actually picking up a draft from someone 100 meters up the up the road, essentially. Um, so it's not a huge draft, but it, it does have, it does play a role. This is for one rider on a 250 meter track. If you throw 120 riders on there, um, first of all, it, it will take up half the the track, but, uh, (laughs) there's, there's no way you would get results that are actually accurate and representative of what cycling outdoors would be like. Um, yeah, and I could also imagine it being a huge mess with people crashing into each other. Because oh, yeah. it's one thing to have like a 120 person peloton on, you know, on an open road, but on a, on a bank track, I think that would be a, that'd be a nightmare. Like anyone who's watched a Kieran race can appreciate <laughs> what it looks like with I, I forget how many riders, maybe eight or ten in a Kieran race. 
forgive me track cyclists who think I should know this. Um, but at 120, that would be that would be quite the battle. Yes, there would be a lot of splinters. I'm I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, oh. So these are yeah. some of the reasons this hasn't really been tested before. Like it is a challenging problem, and it is something that's existed in cycling. So um, it was great to see that someone has actually taken the effort to look at this and the results were quite surprising. Okay. So before we, we're, we're going to keep you, we're going to keep you hanging listeners oh. <laughs> um, before we jump into the results, Andrew, what's, what was your, before reading this article, what was your kind of your, well, I would think educated um, assertion as to the, the reduction in aerodynamic drag in a Peloton for someone who's like smack in the middle of it. What, what did you think? Because I had my own and I, I just want to know what you thought it was before reading this article. Yeah. So, I mean, I have the advantage of foresight and a little bit of hindsight <laughs> looking at the, uh, uh, the previous results I've done, the, the CFD studies I've done. And, yep. and that, I mean, you can't get maybe too much more educated than that. From that position, I would have assumed maybe about twenty-five to thirty percent of the free st- free stream drag of a rider. Um, because so a reduction of seventy to seventy-five percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, and my my the number in my head was about fifty percent. That's kind of what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and even in this article, they discussed that conventional wisdom wisdom was that about fifty percent of the the effort was needed. And I think before we started the recording, we were talking about how. Even at fifty percent, it feels like a significant reduction in workload. Like it's it goes from mm-hmm. something that you're working hard to do to something that you can maintain all day. So right. already it kind of feels like nothing. So it's hard to gauge those efforts at the the low FTP, low percentage of FTP. And uh, that was kind of the anecdotal data that they'd gotten, except a lot of pro riders were saying, well, hold on, it feels like I'm hardly doing anything. And I think the assumption was that just, yeah, you're at low FTP, you're probably doing about half, whatever, we'll call it a day. And then no one really looked into it after that. Um, So are we ready to give results? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we've been, we've been, uh, we've been letting, we've been uh, having people hang for, for long enough. Yeah. What's, uh, what did this article find out? So at the lowest, um, if you're buried inside a big Peloton when it's drafting closely, um, you would exert as much as 5% of the, or experience 5% of the drag. So a 95% reduction in drag. Wow. And they, they phrase it in terms of equivalent speed, um, which is a factor of like four so you're going, it'd be like putting out the same power effort as going one quarter of the speed. So if you're going uh, 40 kilometers an hour, which is, you know, that's a good speed. Yeah. For, for kind of amateur, amateur yeah. triathlete uh, time trialists. Yeah. Like a, an hour, a 40 K hour mm-hmm. is, is pretty, is considered pretty reasonable. Yep. And if you divide that by four, um, 10 kilometers an hour for the same rider should <laughs> not be that difficult. <laughs> I think uh, that's how quickly I go with my uh, my my kid now rides to school every day, which of which I'm super proud, and that's kind of that's kind of our average speed. So it's like riding with my boy to uh, to school every day versus a 40k kind of. Uh, I've I've come I've never actually broken, and this is something I've been working on. I've never broken an hour for uh, for 40 kilometers. I've gotten pretty close. So that effort, I can tell you, is is much harder than riding with with Edward to school every day. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's definitely a solid effort there. Um, and just to to imagine that kind of reduction is is pretty incredible. Um, and now this is for the riders that are just buried deep within the peloton. Um, so obviously, there's a little bit of uh, variation in what you'd experience. 
so the uh, the numbers basically you have to go. Um, well, actually, the lead rider also experiences quite a drag reduction. So they were seeing uh, with the the squished peloton where everyone was half wheeling, um, the lead rider was only experiencing eighty six percent of the typical single person drag. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I, mm-hmm. uh, when I was reading this article, this was I made a little note to ask you about this because this is something we had touched on a little bit in the past, but I really want you to to talk to this a little bit because when I first started cycling, um, one of the things that, like one of the and made no sense then and now I know it's patently untrue, but I've heard some people say that when you are being drafted. So if you're the lead cyclist in this case, and there's somebody drafting you that they're somehow stealing your speed, right? Which is obviously untrue. And this, <laughs> this is one of ways to show that it's, it's not true. And there are lots of other examples of it not being true, but what, how is it that you're actually moving, you know, you're, you're, you're putting out, you have to work less hard for the same speed as the lead rider who you would think is doing all of the work. Why does that work? So there's a couple different things that you can look at for this. Uh, one, the more technical explanation is that you've got these stagnation regions in front of you. So basically, you're decelerating the air that's hitting you. So if you imagine like a big brick wall, the air is going to be coming towards that and then slowing down, and it'll have to go around. So you've got mm-hmm. this area where you're kind of not actually compressing the air, but you're increasing the pressure. And it's like a pillow. Um, so if you're pushing this pillow in front of each rider, um, at some point, if you get close enough, that pillow starts to push on the rider in front. So it, it actually is a way to pay it forward, I guess, literally. <laughs> so um, you can you can take your, your benefits and your speed benefits and push the rider uh, further forward. And um, it just, it does have a little bit of a, an impact. And there've been a few studies that have confirmed this. Mm-hmm. And I think there was one that uh, was done on a Tour de France time trial where they had a car behind a cyclist and at a distance of, I think it was three or five meters, it was actually pretty significant reduction in drag. Um, not like the 95% numbers that we're seeing, but it was 5% or so, which is enough to really tilt the balance on on riders who are getting that extra support versus someone who... Yeah, 5% just... is a lot at those speeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this article, they they saw in the staggered Peloton, it was uh, it looks like it's 86% of yep. what you know, single, single rider drag would have been on that front front athlete. So even that person seeing 14% reduction in drag and that's, that's substantial. Um, and the explanation that I like, and I think you, you offered it to me as to why this happens is that, you know, there, if you, if you can visualize listeners, what happens to the air behind a moving rider, there's a pressure, there's a low pressure region behind the athlete. And Andrew, correct me if I say anything that's totally bogus, but there's a lower, (laughs) low pressure region behind the athlete. And if you fill that low pressure region, uh, instead with another rider who is, who's pushing that air along then you get less of that low pressure sucking you back as the athlete, and that's one of the reasons that uh, that you're not that you're seeing a decrease in drag as that front person. So, along the same lines, what I'll propose is anyone who's listening next time they're driving on the highway and you have a larger vehicle passing you, or you're passing a larger vehicle, um, just pay attention, like going in the same direction, but uh, just pay attention to how the vehicle seems to react as you do that. So as, um, so say you're in the slow lane, this is where I usually am. Um, if you're in the slow lane and you've got a, a truck coming up to pass you, for example, when they come up 
beside you, where the, the front bumper is beside you, the air is trying to force its way around. So it's trying to squeeze in between you and the other vehicle. So you'll get this initial push outward. And then uh, as it comes beside, you're actually accelerating the air in between the two of you, uh, which lowers the pressure because of the Bernoulli effect, and it'll kind of pull you in. Hmm. And then uh, as you're as you're coming around the back, you'll get an extra additional little pull. So you get this, um, yeah, because of the effects of uh, where the pressure builds up and things like that, it tends to um, it tends to impact how you feel next to another vehicle, and it's quite noticeable once you start paying attention. It's quite noticeable. Um, and if you get too close, that's when um, the pressure can actually build in between the vehicles as well. So instead of reducing pressure, uh, it'll increase pressure because now you're creating blockage on the flow uh, and it can't efficiently get through. So there's there's a little bit of an inter- interaction that goes on there. But it's pretty interesting just to, to feel that. Like next time, I, like I think you can learn so much from just situations that exist around. And if you just, if you're paying attention and you think about it, you'll realize all of these different factors that you may have noticed but never really placed before. Um, hmm, so it's cool. very cool stuff, uh, or at least for me, it's <laughs> very cool stuff. Um, <laughs> this is this is how you think about the world when you're an aerodynamics mechanical <laughs> engineer. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a little sad. but uh, <laughs> Not at all. It's, it's an interesting view. So let's talk about the results a little bit, Andrew. How... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when I when I saw five percent or ninety five percent reduction, I was like, "There's no way. This this something something somebody made a mistake here. This can't possibly be the case." Um, but I have no f- like I have no reason to doubt this really, other than just it, it flies in the face of what I've I've always been told or what I've always thought. So um, is there is there kind of what's the veracity of this of this case? And then oh, could there be some some experimental errors, or is there any way to verify this? Um, where do we take it from here? Well, I think one of the strengths of this publication is that they've done both an experimental and a numerical study. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And some of the numerical results that they published, numerical is great because you can visualize all data at all points, basically, unless you delete it or don't save it. Um, experimental is very hard to get this full picture. But when you look at some of the pressure that they see, um, once you're inside the peloton, that pressure drops down significantly. So you're because all the other people ahead of you have done all the work accelerating this air, you're now basically moving along. And it's, it's almost like getting a tailwind in some respects because there's so much mm-hmm. drag imparted on the other people. Um, like I was saying before, the conservation of momentum will accelerate that air near you. And yeah, there will be mixing and other things that slow it down with the air further away. But uh, near the riders, um, it will basically build up where you have a larger and larger amount of air that's moving along with everyone or close to the speed of everyone. And quite often you can feel this, like if you're on the side of a road and someone drives by quickly, um, you can feel the impact of the air getting pulled along behind them. Yep. Um, so it's the same thing that's happening here. So the more more riders in line you have and the deeper you are buried in the peloton, the more drag reduction you can get. And it does seem to peak out at about 5% or bottom out at 5%. Uh, and that's with the closely spaced half wheeling peloton. Right. Um, the the reality is, like, I don't think any real peloton will see this because things are moving around so quickly all the time. Um, so regularly, you can't have people fixed in this position long enough for the 
the flow to really develop in this exact way, but it gives us an mm-hmm. idea of the magnitude of the effect. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. Even even if it's like four percent, five percent, the 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 takeaway is that the effect is tremendous. And this is of course at like zero zero, zero yaw, zero yeah. yaw, right? Yeah, and yeah, this there's is no crosswind. All identical riders too, which is far from right. the case. So these are all like one point eight three meters. So you know right. the average average height Dutch person, I guess. Um, one thing that that's worth noting, and this is not an aerodynamic effect, this is more of a kind of like, um, uh, a consequence of racing is, um, if you've ever ridden, never mind a Peloton, Peloton or, or just, a um, a, uh, pace line, the, there's, there are advantages to being towards the back and there are aerodynamic advantages clearly, mm-hmm. but there's, there are also costs, um, especially in, in bicycle racing, because if that front decides to attack, um, by the time that you in the back realize that there, that the attack has happened, that, that pace line or that Peloton will have probably fractured. It depends how, how keen the middle is, but if, if you're trying to catch that attack from the back, that becomes very difficult. So even though you're probably tooling along at, you know, a very, very dramatic drag reduction and probably you're on very fresh legs. So you may have that response in your legs. Um, it is definitely harder to respond to that, uh, to that challenge, um, from the back than it would be from, you know, closer to the front where maybe you were experiencing, you know, 15% of drag rather than 5% of drag. Yeah. And you see the same effect in a lot of ITU races as well, where they've got these tight courses that are more like crit races. And when they have a line of riders, usually the rider in the back has to work extra hard coming out of the corners because there's this concertina effect where everyone's kind of pulled away and kind of broken that draft a little bit. And it's just the, the dynamics of a group of objects going into a corner. There's only so much space. So you may try to maintain a certain time difference, but um, when you get moving slow enough, that time difference would result in wheel overlap. So you're forced to, to back off a little bit. And then once they accelerate out of that, then it becomes this, this bigger stretched effort. So quite often the elastic will snap and a lot of people get dropped from the back of groups because of that, mm-hmm. especially coming out of very, very slow corners. Yeah. And that makes, and that also, you know, depending on what the, the, the leader of that specific group wants to do, whether or not, you know, he or she wants to maintain that group or, or try to break it up a little bit, but that's definitely, you know, that's the place to crack it. If you're going to do it mm-hmm. as a, as a leader is, uh, you know, certainly into hills and into corners, right? That's where, or over the over hills and out of corners is where, where uh, you may want to break that group up. If that's if that's what you're trying to do, if the group has gotten a little bit too big for what you're mm-hmm. what you're looking to do. Yeah, so I thought this was overall just a fantastic look at what happens at such a large scale for riders. Um, the the models they use, like I said, for logistics reasons, they were all the same size. They were all based on fairly large rider. I think the person they had scanned to get this model was uh, like 75 kilograms and mm-hmm. 1.83 meters. So quite a tall, muscular rider. Um, and certainly that's not the makeup of the average uh, pro tour tel- peloton. But um, the effects are, are pretty similar, regardless of what sizes you're looking at. There's always going to be some variation, but it's um, but it was really interesting to see someone actually take a dive into this. Um, I thought it was super cool and it really highlighted that things are not the way we seem or the way we assumed. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's a super interesting article. We'll link to it in the show notes, uh, folks, if you want to have a read of it yourself. 
Um, but there are some some really some really fun takeaways. And I bet I'm willing to bet that obviously air velocities are much slower. But if you're if you're looking at running too, if for for all of our you know listeners who are well triathletes or runners only. Um, in very big races when we're actually allowed to be close to one another in, uh, you know, hopefully happier times in the future, um, in big races like mass marathons or, or shorter distance races where there's a group of folks with like a large group of folks, I'm willing to bet that there are some benefits to being kind of, you know, in, in the middle of that pack. And obviously when you're running, um, for all sorts of reasons, which we're not going to get into here, the aerodynamic forces, um, contribute much less to your, overall impediment to forward motion than they would in cycling but they're not they're not trivial so uh this might be something that you you want to consider as a runner as well and as a quick side note that's unrelated to really anything we've discussed here um <laughs> we know, like side notes <laughs> i know that my dad has been listening to this so um if anything this is just justification for me staying in school uh for so long so <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to justify the the financial support that your family has provided you with it's more emotional <laughs> support at this point emotional support yeah, it's uh yeah. <laughs> but no it's been eight years close to eight years i've been working on my phd it's about time to finish it up i'm working on it but uh i have learned a few <laughs> things at least so that's a good sign <laughs> dad i haven't wasted my life <laughs> yeah <laughs> mr buckrell <laughs> if you're listening <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, anything else you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, I think this is not a nice... my PhD part, but the, the no. <laughs> I think you've got enough on that plate. Yeah. Uh, no, I think this is a great place to wrap it up. Um, as always, I'm, I'm constrained by my by usually by having to pick up my kid. It's always it seems like we're always recording before, you know, before I have to get Edward or Malcolm out of school and they're in different schools or different pickup times. So the joys of parenthood. Um, I think that's good. I think that's uh, a, a good spot to leave it under. Excellent. Well, if anyone has any questions about this, um, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what the feedback is from people and whether they agree with this assessment. I've never ridden in a large Peloton, so mm -hmm. I can't say for sure, but it would be very interesting to hear listener feedback and, and what they think about this analysis and if it confirms what they have felt on a personal level. Actually, yeah, that's a great point. That was something that when I was uh, reading the article and thinking about uh, things to talk about, that's something I wanted to bring up. So I'm, uh, thank you for for doing that. If you have access to power meter data from somebody in a, in a big group like this, who is sitting in the back, especially on a, on a flat road, uh, flat stretch of road, I'd love to see it. I just want to see if it's, mm -hmm. you know, if we're... If it's if it really is close to five percent or ten percent, or is it closer to you know thirty fifty percent? Um, if we can confirm this, that would be that would be pretty interesting because that would be you know it's not it wouldn't be a the precision obviously wouldn't be the same as as the kind of testing that that these folks did, but it would be kind of uh, kind of a very rough validation or mm -hmm. refutation of the findings. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, cool. Um, th folks, thank you very much, uh, as always, for tuning in and uh, spending a little bit of time listening to us <laughs> talk about the, uh, the the vagaries and the intricacies, in this case, of cycling aerodynamics and, and, and bird wing um, turbulence wakes <laughs> <laughs> and how to drive on the highway. Um, <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you do enjoy what you hear, yeah, give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, that's right. 50, you, you know, you can, I can live at 50% of FTP forever mm -hmm. until like I fall asleep on the bike. <laughs>
or my butt gets sore. I don't know. Like, <laughs> there's going to be some other like non-metabolic, non-muscular limiter there. 